Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammam Sangam Namasami We spoke about the ten armies of Mara. These are another version of the five hindrances. So the five hindrances that you've all been witnessing and experiencing in mind and body in different ways are sense desire, aversion or anger, hatred, sloth and torpor, lack of clarity of mind or exhaustion, anxiety and restlessness, and doubt, perplexity not believing that this is really taking you anywhere. There are jhana factors, there are special qualities of mind which development of the practice lead to and which are the antidotes, they're like the antibiotics for these hindrances. And they directly apply to them, they undermine them. So instead of getting caught up in a hindrance, like thinking about the kind of food that you wish you were getting, because it's not happening, or the worry about whether you're really understanding the instructions, or you're feeling so tired you can't perk your energy up, then instead of trying to face those hindrances head on, like slay the dragon with a little feather. Instead, what we can do consciously is develop these antidotes. I'll just go through the factors of jhana, and jhana is a power of mind, a way that the mind burns up defilements by developing these factors and leading the mind to really enter into the object and be present for it in a way that is unobstructed, undefiled, and takes us far from the sense realm. This is really important for our practice. So to begin with, the first two factors are vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is the aiming power of the mind. All of us have this ability. You direct your attention at the object, uh, whether it's the breath or you're scanning the body, it could be at the top of your head, your heart, solar plexus, your belly. Wherever you're focusing your mind, you aim your attention there. And this aiming power of the mind, just like the archer that aims the bow 
that she might be pulling on. So this kind of aiming is directing our attention in one spot. One spot. And this is an energy that lifts the mind up and carries it forward until it lands where it's intended. Vitaka is directly the antidote to sloth and torpor. Because when we are bringing our attention towards the object, we're making the right effort, a wholesome effort, a concerted effort, a devoted effort, a constant, continuous effort and energetic focus on and directing the mind, just like a director who stands in front of an orchestra and conducts, and all the instruments play together. If there was no conductor, they would make a very discordant sound. But as soon as the conductor raises his hand or moves it in a particular direction, the instruments seem to line up, and the sound that comes is very pleasing. So in this way, the energy of the heart is lifted up and directed towards the object in one energetic flow. There is no tiredness in that. It's an uplift, and it's aimed in one direction. And that direction is not towards the sense realm. It's away from it. So it's very wholesome, very pure. Vitaka is this aiming power. All of us have it. Very often we spend our energy in life aiming towards objects, other objects distractedly, going hither and thither. But by aiming energetically in one spot, we fight, we disrupt, we obstruct, we prevent the mind from giving in to this tiredness, sleepiness, this dullness, this lack of clarity. And the mind wakes up, and in that wakefulness, it looks and sees the object clearly. How can we work with an object until we see it? That's why vitaka is so important. And it's the harbinger of all the other factors. We start out by having the energy to work. Like a surgeon, before the surgeon gets into the amphitheater where he's going to perform the surgery, he or she will wash hands, put on a gown, prepare all the instruments, then enter the chamber and apply a concerted energy, awake, not to slip up. can't slip up when you're cutting up someone. You really have to be careful. So here we're working with the mind. It's so delicate. We want to aim in the right way. There's a very famous Zen story about a Zen master who tested his students by asking them to shoot at a bird in a tree. It's like a target. And so they're supposed to aim the arrow at this bird in the tree. It's just a a fake little bird. And so he asked the student, what do you see? And the student says, 
I see a bird sitting in the tree. Dismissed. Next student. He asks him, what do you see? He's like teaching them how to aim. He says, I see the bird. And he says, dismissed. And the third student, he asks him, what do you see? And he says, I see the the pupil of the bird's eye. Aha. Something like that. (laughs) It's not enough just to vaguely see the object. We have to go right to... uh, Sorry about the violent image, but it's like a little plastic bird, right? (laughs) (laughs) You want to hit the heart of the object, the very center where your arrow needs to land. So the next factor of jhana is vichara. Vichara means evaluating, holding, studying, examining, knowing. Now what happens when the attention lands on the breath? Okay, it lands on the breath. That's not enough. Then we have to use our discernment, our discriminating wisdom, to understand what is that? What do I see? What is being seen? What is coming into consciousness through the medium of the eye, the sense door of the eye, the eye in contact with the object? We're seeing not with the optic. We're seeing internally as the Saki Bhutto, the internal witness. And this kind of seeing is an intuitive insight. And so we see the object in a way that is different than we see objects in ordinary life, where we might see them with attachment, attraction or aversion, disappointment, different ways that we react. In this sense, we're seeing the object in its true, ultimate characteristics. We see it as impermanent, as unsatisfactory, and as empty of any solid being or self. It's not who we are. It's not a solid thing. It's a process. Like the breath, it's arising and ceasing. It's particulate. It's many, many elements coming together, converging into what appears as breath but it's actually empty. But so we see the object for what it really is. And this seeing is what dispels doubt. As soon as we see the object in its true light, then doubt does not arise. It has nowhere to land. The mind comes upon the object as it really is. We see its true characteristics. So in this way, doubt cannot attack, it cannot take hold of the mind, because the mind is able to examine and investigate properly by seeing clearly, having this direct view. This is the right view of the object. Here we are developing the Eightfold Path through the jhana factors. So already two of the hindrances We have the antidotes for them. Now, when these two factors are developed and when they 
come to fruit, then we become very concentrated and the mind begins to experience bliss, joy, ineffable. But it's very, very direct. And this is called piti. We can experience it as a puff of smoke or tremors in the body, shivers, vibrations, a current, like an electric current, or a bright light, or stars, or shimmering might appear, or just very pleasant abiding, a beautiful sensation in the mind and the body. Unearthly, not from the sense realm, because this is a very pure kind of joy. Sometimes these words, piti sukha, in some places, piti is described as joy and sukha as happiness. Sometimes sukha is described as joy and piti is bliss. But basically, piti is more excited. It's a more vibrant joy that comes. And it, this comes from knowing with a pure and clear mind the object exactly as it is, not through any interpretation of the sense realm. We're distant from the sense realm now. We're experiencing through our intuitive awareness, through this internal witness. So we have the antidote to aversion through this joyful, blissful feeling. So when you feel this kind of uplift in the heart, the heart just is like a rejoicing, like a, a shimmering quality of mind. No ill will can arise in the face of that. This is where metta can develop easily, easily. And it's a great brightness of mind, the smiling of the mind the sun coming out, is an antidote to ill will. How important is that? How magnificent to have an antibiotic for ill will. If we're experiencing any feelings of hostility or negativity in our practice, then we can try to sharpen our focus Uplift the mind towards the object, know the object intimately, discover it, experience it deeply, and then experience the bliss of knowing it intuitively so that we have this mental reflex image of the breath appearing in the mind as if the sun or the moon were to come out from behind the clouds. How bright the whole night. It's the dispeller of darkness. Who can hold negativity in the face of that? Such a force. We can turn our minds towards the Dhamma in this way. The dispeller of darkness. Vitakavichar prevail in the first jhana. In the second jhana, they fade away and piti prevails. 
in the third jhana. These are stages of absorption of the mind, stages of deep stillness in the mind that we develop one by one. Each is a prerequisite or a precursor of the next. And they evolve naturally as these particular factors of concentration are developed and perfected. And in their development and perfection, mindfulness is also evolving and maturing and ripening. So in the third jhana, piti subsides and sukha prevails. Sukha is the antidote of restlessness. It's the mind that is non-distracted. It doesn't want to wander anymore. It's so very serene. This is a happiness that doesn't waver the way the previous piti, like when the ocean has waves in it. And it's very beautiful to see the waves. But even more lovely is to see the ocean completely still, not a ripple, extending into eternity. And that's the mind that is serene. It's a happiness that is profound because we have so deeply entered the object, the mind does not wish to stir. It's content, contented, contentment a deep serenity of mind. And some of you may be experiencing this. So there's no restlessness arising. Like in the previous state, there was a bliss, but bliss can be tiring. If you get very excited, like the other day we saw a bear as we came out of the temple, and there was a big buzz, we were all so excited about the bear, with a cub. How wonderful. Of course, it was at a safe distance. That was also wonderful. (laughs) And we were next to the temple. We felt very secure. And our lovely bear also felt very secure, which is nice that the creatures feel safe in our little sanctuary. Here, the heart has entered its true sanctuary. It is no longer excited, but it is inside the temple of the heart, content to just sit there. It feels no pain in the body, no pain in the mind, no over-excitement of happiness that's difficult to sustain. But this is a joy, this is a happiness that is more profound and can be sustained. And that's the third jhana. But there is yet a deeper level. And at this deeper level, we come to the absolute stillness of mind of the fourth jhana. Here the mind reaches the point when all the factors, the mental factors of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom are unified and at one with the object. There's no strand of concentration that can move away from the object. And there is no separation between 
the knowing of the object and the experiencing of the object. They are not separate. There's no sense of self. So this is the one-pointedness, the antidote to passion for sense pleasure. We are totally secluded from the senses at this point. Desire does not arise. There's not even a whimper, not a whisper of sense desire. There's nowhere that the mind wants to go. It's absolutely secluded within itself. This is the point where mindfulness is perfected. When concentration attains to the fourth jhana, this is the perfection of mindfulness. Deeply, deeply equanimous, mindful, mental absorption. And these four absorptions give us great protection for our practice. They provide a basis from which when the mind emerges from that fourth jhana, we have the ability to apply that power that we've developed towards insight and wisdom, liberating wisdom, that will lead us to a cessation of sensory passion and desire, at least where the first three fetters are overcome. We overcome doubt, we overcome this personality view, and we overcome the belief in rites and rituals as a way of liberation. And this is why the development of the Eightfold Path goes from right view, right thought. Right view is a right seeing, and this is developed through the clarity of mind where we started with aiming correctly and examining the object and knowing it truly. This is developing right view and right thought, right intention, right aim. And then right virtue is the purification of mind through triumphing over the five hindrances, its essential highest value for us on this path. This is worthy of our greatest effort to develop this kind of virtue. It's more than just right speech and right action. Coming into this purity, we can then pick up virtue in our lives much more faithfully and earnestly because we understand the power of virtue. It's not just, okay, I'll keep these five precepts if I have to. But it's realizing the danger in the slightest diversion from virtue. There is no more bargaining. Oh, just a drink here and there. There's no need. We see the decline of the practice if we compromise on virtue. They are so directly connected. And then for a meditator, right livelihood is how do we spend our time? Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Where does all this lead? Working together, the samatha vipassana practice leads to right release. 
the liberation of mind, knowledge and vision of the path and the fruit of the path. Inside these practices, we see that sustaining these jhana factors is not enough to establish a basis for wisdom and insight. Because many a practitioner has gotten caught in the joys of the concentrated mind and forgotten about the development of wisdom. Sayada Upandita would never teach the jhanas until a student had applied themselves very diligently to the development of insight. Because he didn't want them to get trapped. And my first teacher, Fakar Kapali Baba in India, back in 1972, he was always warning me, don't lie down in the shade of a tree when you have the whole path in front of you. Don't get caught in the pleasures of different stages of the path until you have completed the first stage where you have true protection, where you will never decline again, never revert to worldly aims and values. Because just developing the jhanas of themselves, that's not a permanent protection unless they are sustained and continued until we reach sotapanna, first stage of awakening. Then there's a place of safety. And even from there, not to relax, but keep developing our wisdom and our insight until we have complete freedom. This is the possibility that the Buddha promised us. If we give our whole heart to this practice. Some people do that by entering the monastery. But simply shaving one's head and wearing a robe is also not a guarantee. In the monastery, one can also tread water and not be diligent. Whatever form one uses, one must apply oneself to the path diligently and continue to develop it, cultivate it, devote oneself to it year after year until our last breath, until we reach the goal and even then never stop practicing and being mindful, being aware, being awake. And then return into the world to help others receive the blessings of this teaching. The work doesn't end. But what we really can change ourselves, we can't change anybody else's mind. There's no way, even our best intention, even if we're on our deathbed and all our loved ones come and rally around us and try to help us get enlightened, there's nothing they can do. We have to do it ourselves. No one can do it for us. So this is urgent. We don't know when death will come knocking. We always think that it's not going to happen to me. 
But we are death-bound, every single one of us. These bodies are full of death. If we reflect on them, even for a minute, we can see that they're constantly in a process of death and decay, dying, dying away and decaying. You look at a picture of yourself from just a few years ago and you can think, well, who was that? These bodies are nothing. We don't know how old we really are in terms of countless lifetimes of struggling with our kilesas and trying to purify and offload and be freed from these realms circling in the cosmos over and over again, getting recycled into different forms and not being freed from the realms of suffering. So we must rethink all these conventions that we've been weaned on and fed throughout our lives. We have to rethink them and transform our consciousness so that we understand our predicament more truly. Not the way the world teaches it to us, but the way we discover the truth here within this fathom-long body and mind and these combined mental and physical processes. These right here are our teachers. By studying them, we come to know the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, its origin, its ending, and the path to realize the cessation of suffering. Don't be impatient for results. Don't evaluate your practice in worldly terms. We don't know, truly we don't know, what is happening through this very subtle, invisible work that we're doing. We feel tired, we feel discouraged, but if we just notice the tiredness and notice the discouragement, that noticing of those mind states or those physical states is not tiredness. The noticing is not discouragement. The noticing, the knowing of it is not greedy. The pure knowing is not doubt. The pure knowing and understanding and seeing the objects of consciousness is not restless and is not tired but it is our instrument, the very path, the road, that if we direct our minds in that way, we will learn to overcome these hindrances. And then we can see the hindrance arising in the mind and ceasing. That's the path. There is tiredness, you know it, you feel it, and then you watch it ebb away. It's not going to magic its way out because we want it to end. But it ends because its nature is to end. And if we have enough patience to be with the tiredness and see, this is tiredness. And we observe it arising, persisting for a while, and then falling away because it will change if we observe it correctly and know it for what it is 
and stop identifying with it. Stop believing this is who I am. Seeing there's no one sitting under the Bodhi tree. No one. The Buddha realized the nothingness, the no-oneness of his own body-mind. He realized his Buddha nature is waking up to that, the emptiness of all these phenomena. It's because we believe the story that Mara is trying to hand us over and over again. We're so happy to hear these stories and believe them, but they're false. And if we keep seeing through the eyes of truth, moment by moment, instant by instant, these infinitesimally tiny, immeasurable sips of eternity, then the truth comes rushing in, and the truth will free us. First, it frees us in tiny increments, But we don't realize that these are increments. We just think nothing's happening. But something very big is happening. Just bear with it. Be so patient. It could take a whole lifetime. Give your whole life to this and watch the result. It could take more than a lifetime. It doesn't matter. Don't try to chalk up points. We're not evaluating. We're just completely devoted to this without judgment. Then we have the experience of the joy, of the gratitude. That is our engine that will take us to the end. It's an energy that is not just the initiating energy or sustaining energy, but it's an energy that takes us to the goal a fulfillment of the path. Like the bamboo grove, Jim was telling me about an experience in South America with a farmer who had planted a bamboo grove and year after year kept preparing the soil and watering and nurturing and cultivating and year after year nothing happened. Nothing at all. And then in the fifth year, in the fifth year, these tiny little shoots appeared and the bamboo grew 80 feet in six weeks. How astonishing. So let's be like bamboo. We don't care about the time. We just have to have that much trust That's what devotion is. It's a fanatical faith. I remember when I first became a nun, people thought I was mad 30 years ago. Bald women in robes. It was pretty mad. Yeah, I'm mad for the Dhamma. Fanatical faith in this Dhamma. So even though you think that I've just had it easy, For 30 years? No. But this is what keeps me going, is I just trust so deeply that 
This path is the only freedom to be found, is this way, this kind of work. <laughs> 